back to the Behaviors and Trauma and Education podcast. The last podcast that we had, we talked about the background of the ACEs study and the different things that may correlate and some prevalency factors that go along with the higher amount of ACEs, the more things that you are more likely to undergo as you get older. Now, there is a lot of arguments and a lot of positive and negative things that go with the ACE study. The ACE study alone isn't a great predictor and the end all when it comes to trauma, but it is something that's widely known and it's a good thing to lay a foundation for a little bit of awareness about trauma. <clears throat> so today's podcast, we're going to talk about strategies for working with students who have experienced trauma. So I hope that you guys are able to take some of these strategies away and it'll be something that you'll be able to apply in your classrooms and whatever settings you work with students throughout the schools. So the first thing that I want to talk about is understanding fight, flight, or freeze. So this is something that Dr. Perry, a neuroscientist, and he studied neuroscience for a great deal of his career. And this is these are the three different states that we can understand our students and anybody will respond to when they get to their highest escalation. So the analogy that is out there is I'm going to assume that everybody has hiked or hunted. They've been in the mountains. They've been in the hills at some point in their lives. So if you're hiking, you're walking around, you may not have pat, maybe you have a pepper spray, you have a, some type of weapon on you, but a grizzly bear approaches you and a grizzly, grizzly bear starts chasing you and everybody, um, Dr. Bruce Perry found out, responds to this state of fear in one way. It's either a fight where they want to fight the grizzly bear, it's a flight where they run away from the grizzly bear, or a freeze where they're stuck dead in their tracks and they can't move and they don't know what to do. Their brain doesn't know how to respond to it. So you're going to hear me talk a lot about fight, flight, or freeze, but that's the analogy. Picture yourself in the, in the woods, in the mountains, and a grizzly bear chases you. How do you respond? All of our students are going to respond different ways, and a lot of this is due to the way that their brain is developed. So a lot of our students, that grizzly bear is somebody that they're living at home with or something that's happened to them throughout their lives. They might have heard that grizzly bear fighting last night upstairs and when their parents were trying to go to bed or when their dad was doing something to their mom or something that happened to them throughout their lives. So they walk in in that heightened state after just being attacked by a grizzly bear almost every single day. Now this isn't every student, but there are students that live in that state of fear when they walk through our doors. And the reason that they live in this heightened state is because the brain is developed to keep us alive. So the lowest part of the brain is called the brainstem and that's where it keeps our fight, flight or freeze responses and it keeps our heartbeat. It does everything it can to keep us alive. And so a lot of times our students are living out of their brainstem. They're not able to respond to things. They're not able to get into the upper parts of their brains to critically think and do things the way that we expect them to in the schools. So understanding that these kids are constantly living in that state of fight, flight or freeze will really help us to understand what we can do to help them and kind of make them feel safe and get them out of that feeling that they're being attacked constantly and they always have to be on the defense and they always have to be prepping themselves to be safe. Another cool analogy that I heard from a conference that I went to, if you guys haven't heard of Dr. Clayton Cook out of the University of Minnesota, you should read some of his stuff. But he talked a lot about a, like setting a fire. 
So if you've ever started a fire, maybe a bonfire, a fire in the wild, it is a long process unless you have the tools necessary to do so. You have to find some kindling, you have to find twigs, you have to find wood, sometimes newspaper. And if that doesn't work, then you obviously have to take lighter fluid. We're going to pretend that the fire is the heightened state. It's the highest amount of energy. It's the scaredest. It's the most defense. It's the highest escalation for our students to fire. His analogy was that it takes people a really long time, the average developing human being of whatever age range you're talking about, it takes people a really long time to build that fire, to get to the point where they're escalated and it's something that they are really having a tough time dealing with. But for students with trauma, they're already walking in the doors doused in lighter fluid, which means they don't have a long process to get to that fire starting. They're already doused in lighter fluid and the second a spark happens, their fire is started. And so that's something that really took me back and something that I realized was evidently true. And I put a bunch of students in that situation and I could realize it. And a lot of people talk about it being, you hear the word short fuse, but it's true. It's like having a firework that has a short fuse and you start it and you can't run away, excuse me, fast enough. It's the exact same thing. These students, whether they like it or not, they've lived in their brain stems for so long their fuses have become so short because they're constantly having to defend themselves and live in a state where they have to be protected. Their fuse is so short that when you light that fuse, immediately a fire happens. And that fuse is us as teachers. It might be other students that they're interacting with. Anytime we ask them to do something that they feel like they're being challenged or they have to be defensive to anything that might hurt them or any reaction or social interaction, that fuse is lit and then that's when we see the behaviors. And so this is something that if we can really wrap our heads around to understand that kids walk in the doors, whether we like it or not, they are doused in lighter fluid. And a lot of the people, a lot of people talk about this being invisible and it's not something that you can see. You can't see the lighter fluid on these students, but you need to be able to have the empathy and sympathy and understand that this is happening and there's things that we can do to help. One of the best things that I heard from one of my friends um, was don't try to understand what's going on, rather just listen. And so talk to the counselors, talk to the social workers and understand what's going on. Don't try to understand what's going on, rather just listen so you're better prepared. We'll never understand what some of these students go through, but if we can listen and just open an awareness to what is happening and what their exposure is, it will really help us as educators to better apply what things we can do to help meet the needs of these students. So now we understand how the brain responds to students when they're in the elevated state that we might see in our classrooms. Here's some prevention techniques that I think could really benefit. Super basic things that I think most teachers in whatever setting you're in could implement. Maslow's hierarchy of needs, basic needs are food, water, and shelter. Some of the biggest things that I've learned through my practices with students and education is a lot of times when a student has a behavior, I would just throw a rough estimate of maybe 70% of the time. It's either because a student hasn't ate breakfast, the student's hungry, student needs water, student needs shelter, or sleep. Those are the three basic needs that we need to survive as human beings, food, water, and shelter. If the student hasn't ate, He's going to be grumpy and that fuse, he or she's going to be grumpy and that fuse is even going to be shorter. If the student needs water, they're going to be grumpy. They need to drink water. They need to survive. And they need shelter. 
if they didn't have a good place to sleep, if they had to sleep on the wooden floor and their parents were up fighting all night or their neighbors in the apartments were yelling and screaming, they couldn't sleep, the student might need a little nap throughout the day. And if we don't provide that for the student, they might, that, shoes, that fuse gets a lot shorter. And then that's when we start to see the escalations, the behaviors, the trips to the office, people getting into physical aggression, the violence. So these are things that we can provide within our classrooms, within our schools, just simple water bottles, simple little snacks for students. And areas, I like calling them safe spaces. Um, if you ever read any of the trauma-informed stuff, they talk a lot about having these safe, comfortable spaces within your classrooms. Places where if a student wants to go into that safe spot within your classroom, they know and you know why that is. Students don't abuse it, but if they need a place where they can go sit, they could put some noise-canceling headphones on, they could go close their eyes, they could go sit somewhere where they're comfortable, it will really help to understand that that student just needs five minutes before they jump into the instruction to decompress, wipe some of that lighter fluid off, get back down, and understand that they're safe and comfortable. When we can, when we can provide those opportunities for students, it's really going to help them to understand. Not a lot of students are going to want to talk. These students are extremely resilient, and they've been through a lot, whether they like it or not. But the best thing that we can do is provide these things for them. And by us doing these things, we're not even asking them what's going on. Rather, it's a nonverbal gesture, and we're not trying to poke and pry and get things out of them. We're not trying to say, Johnny, tell me what's going on. Students don't want to talk about those things, but if we can pro provide the safe spaces, the opportunities for them to shut their eyes for five minutes, the opportunity for them to get a snack, water, if we can provide these needs for them, for them when they come to school to understand that they're safe, we have some needs for them, so those students know if they get through the night, They've witnessed what they witnessed. They get to school, they at least know they have that safe space in their home base, their first period. They have the opportunity for that snack, that water bottle. They know that when they get to school, they can be comfortable and they can take that lighter fluid off to the best of their abilities and kind of cope. The other great strategy for teachers is consistency and scheduled and predictable things that you do in your classroom. So this might be having your lesson on the board for the week. A lot, of, a lot of teachers are already doing this, but for students of a trauma background, this is really helpful because all of the inconsistency in these students' lives, they're always living in that heightened state. They don't know what to, they don't know what to expect because they're constantly having to be on the defense. They're not sure what angle it's coming from, what, what front they're gonna have to put up. But when we as educators can tell these students what they need to expect, we can put um, our lessons for the board for the whole week, for the semester, whatever it is, you let students know ahead of time. These scheduled and predictable things, the same seating charts, can really help these students feel safe. When these students don't know what to expect when they walk into your classroom, they don't know what to expect for the assignment, they don't know where they're sitting, the seating charts are constantly changed. These things really arouse our students because they aren't used to change and the one thing that they like is structure. Just again, think about the inconsistencies, think about the failures, whether it's parents, whether it's um, previous teachers. There's so many things that these children have had to go through and inconsistencies and trust that they've lost. These students have a lot of, a lot of times have difficulties trusting adults. And so when we can provide and build some of that trust, it really helps. Opportunities to move around. So there's a lot of studies that students who have experienced significant amounts of trauma have a direct correlation with ADHD. And in pharmaceuticals and psychiatry, there's a direct link between diagnosing a student who's been through trauma with ADHD. And what a lot of people are finding is it's not necessarily ADHD that these students have, rather 
they're constantly living in that heightened state. They're constantly on the defense and their brains have been altered for the rest of their lives as we've been talking about. So they constantly need to move around because they're constantly living in that state. doesn't necessarily mean that they have a disorder, they don't need a label. Rather, their brains have been shifted and they need the opportunities to move around because of the state that they're constantly living in. So when you can understand that these students need to move around, you can give them um, different lessons. You can give them different errands. Can you go run this to the office for me? Would you mind going to check on this? These students can really benefit from getting up and moving around. These are your students that may benefit from a PE every single day, being able to move around, get their mind off things. That really helps their overall health. Um, and then these are the students that really, really, really could benefit from sensory breaks. Whether they're student to special education, regular education, these are things that we can build into their schedules, a five minute break every class period, whatever the case may be, for these students to get up, move around so they don't always have to have that shell and that defense on. And last thing, obviously fidgets are a big thing, but these fidgets really help these students. Instead of having a student have to sit there with anxiety and worry about what's about to happen next, what's about to happen when I go home, if we can at least give them something for them to fidget with and move their hands around to kind of take their brains off it, it will really, really help. A lot of these students will be students that scratch, pick, um, cut themselves, bite themselves. So if we can provide these things, it can really help them just kind of relax. The last thing that I'm going to leave you with is a pretty cool strategy that I, I saw from an administrator on a social networking platform. His name is Danny Steele. And basically what he did is he took a regular check-in, check-out, and he inverted it and created a pretty cool method for working with students who have developed some trust issues with adults throughout the past. This isn't 100% students that have been through any varying amounts of trauma, but just students who have a difficult time trusting adults, believing that we're there for them, and believing that we're somebody that they can feel safe with. So what he did is normally a traditional check-in, check-out. You come here during first period during home base. You check in, at, you check out at the end of the day. Very structured, very rigid. For some students it works, some students it doesn't. It's one more thing to put on these students' plate, and it's one more thing that we ask and we expect of them when their entire lives they've been listening to things and constantly been told what to do over and over and over again. So he go. This his method is simply: Will you come check in on me throughout the day when you get a chance, Johnny? And so by an administrator saying that. He takes his administrator hat off and he shows that he's vulnerable. He asks that student, instead of you having to come in and check on me at 2.45 every single day, whenever it works for you, why don't you come in and check in on me to make sure I'm doing well. He shows that he's vulnerable. He shows that he's capable of having really difficult days and he's not the superior human being that's perfect and knows all. And it, if we can learn that and adopt that method as teachers, it will really help develop some strong trust and some strong bonds with our students throughout the day, especially the students that we've experienced that may have a parent-child conflict, things that when students are having trouble trusting adults and they don't want to listen to adults and they get tired of being told what to do over and over and over again, this is a really cool method of taking a step back and putting it on the child. And then if we know that that child doesn't come and doesn't check in on the administrator or the teacher or whoever's implementing this method, we know that there's something going on then. And then we can dive a little bit deeper into it. The last thing I want to leave you guys with is our topic for next week. And my topic includes how do we identify students who have gone through trauma? So in my previous podcast last week, I talked about the ACE study and how on average about 48% of students in your classrooms have gone through one or more ACEs. So I want to be able to help and be a resource to identify those students, some behaviors that you may or may not see, internalizers versus externalizers, so that we can better implement interventions for these students and meet their needs for what they're showing us and the behaviors that they're showing us in the classroom. Thank you for listening.